Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is a place where every week we gather together here uh, virtually and electronically to have conversations with thinkers and leaders. And uh, as you're listening today, I want to remind you to be sure to check out the new uh, podcast, Russell Moore Podcast, separate uh, podcast, and I'm teaching there chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis, um, as well as across in the jukebox, looking at country music through the grid of religion, and answering questions about your moral dilemmas. So you can check that out at the other podcast, Russell Moore Podcast. But here on Signposts, we're looking for those pointers toward grace in what uh, Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. And today, I want to talk to an author whose work I have read uh, for a long time and benefited from immensely. Uh, he's, He's one of those very rare uh, writers who combines robust scholarship with really good writing in terms of the craft of, of writing. I think the first book of his that I read was American Jesus, about the way that that Jesus has um, has has featured into the American cultural landscape and changed uh, in many ways in terms of the American cultural mind. Uh, and he's written several books since then. I read all of them. Stephen Prothero is the C. Allen and Elizabeth B. Russell Professor of Religion in America at Boston University, and some of the books that he's written include, and we'll be talking about uh, today, uh, Why Liberals uh, Win the Culture Wars, uh, and also Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't. Dr. Prothero was the chief academic advisor for the uh, series God in America, and he deals with issues of American and world religion all of the time. Uh, Dr. Prothero, thanks so much for being with us on Signpost today. Thanks so much for having me. You spend, of course, your entire life's work uh, looking at religion and examining religion. One of the things that I notice is that uh, people who do that do so for, for different reasons. For some people, it's kind of, um, they they grew up steeped in a certain spiritual tradition, and so that's kind of the bridge that causes them to look at other spiritual traditions. For some people, it's curiosity, and, and sometimes that's people who had no background at all in spiritual and religious things, and so their curiosity is awakened to something that initially seems strange to them and then becomes familiar. What about you? What what led to your uh, interest in in these issues of, of really the, the full breadth and depth of religion? Well, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, and my family was very uh, active. I was actually on the vestry of the Episcopal Church, uh, my Episcopal Church in Massachusetts, when I was 16 years old. So we took a very strong interest in Christianity and particularly in the social service, social gospel side of Christianity, which my mother really emphasized to us. So uh, 
that was a strong part of my upbringing. And then when I went to college, I, I met all these people of different religious uh, traditions and it just kind of gradually whittled away at my belief in the exclusive uh, truth of Christianity. And at the same time, I was taking cor a course in American history where the professor, uh, Richard Fox, who now teaches at USC, he was really emphasizing the role of religion in American culture. So I think what happened is that I was able to sort of replace what had been a more faith-based interest in religion with a more academic interest in religion in a way that was kind of weirdly seamless, although it was, it was also uh, difficult, excruciating actually, <laughs> in mm. some ways. And I think part of what that gave me was a, uh, a sense that religion really mattered, that this was not a trifle uh, part of culture and of history, but that it was really central to the lives of the overwhelming majority of humans uh, on earth. And I think that that's just stuck with me throughout my professional career. Well, one of your books, I remember when the, the, the book first came out and the title I uh, sort of blanched at uh, initially until I, until I saw what it was that you were arguing. Uh, God is not one. Uh, and, and what I was expecting was uh, something very different than what you ended up doing. What you ended up doing was actually taking apart the idea that's very common in uh, secular North America and Western Europe and other places that religion is all basically just the same. And you have different flavors of it in Christianity and Taoism and Buddhism and, and what have you in order to say, no, these are, these are really distinctive ways of, of seeing and knowing the world. And if you don't see those differences, you don't see the religions at all. Um, do, do you think that that that, that most people are grasping that better now? Or is secularization uh, causing it to go in the other direction, where religion just is increasingly one big strange thing to many people? I think it really depends on whether you're talking about academics or whether you're talking about the general public. Because the general public, I think, continues to be really attracted to this idea. And I understand the attraction. And I think it is largely a moral attraction. There's the awareness that religions have throughout history and even today fomented war and that people have killed one another because they were of a different religion. And so, oh, here's an easy solution. Let's pretend the religions are all the same and convince all the religious people that they're really in the same, in the same family. And there's a certain logic to that in the sense that religious traditions typically affirm some sort of this, right? Like in the, gen I heard you say you're going to be talking about Genesis, you know, um, God creates all human beings. God doesn't just create Christians. God doesn't just create Muslims. God doesn't just create white people or black people. So I think there's a certain ethical uh, attraction to that. But then if you know any religious people, or if you take religion in any way seriously, and you say to a Muslim, like, okay, um, the Hajj to Mecca, that's not really something that's shared across the religions. That must not be important to you because my theory is that only the central things, uh, the central things are all shared. Or, oh, Christians affirm the unique incarnation of Jesus and Hindus say, oh, no, there's many incarnations. Well, who cares? That, that can't be anything that really matters. Uh, and let's just, 
you know, smooth all those rough edges over. Um, whereas in the academy, I think there's just the sociology of the academy in the humanities and the social sciences both is that we're supposed to be specialists. So we're sort of trained to look at things in a more and more specialized way. So there's a, a big push now to say, no, there isn't Buddhism. There's many Buddhisms. Uh, no, there's many Mahayana Buddhisms. There's many forms of Pentecostalism. Um, there's many forms of Roman Catholicism. So I think there's a gap there, but I think it continues to be prevalent, this idea of perennialism or the unity of the world's religions. It continues to be prevalent in the general public uh, in the U.S., particularly on the, on the East and West Coast. Well, and I think there's some overlap with what you were writing about in religious literacy, about a a problem of religious illiteracy, not just with secular people, but with religious people also, about sometimes their own religions and and certainly about other people's religions. That can show up. I I remember uh, having a conversation one time about chaplaincy with someone who was supervising chaplains and had uh, said that the Roman Catholic chaplains needed to give the Eucharist to everybody. And said, so what difference does it make? It's just bread and wine. And I said, well, like, somebody who would, who would argue that would no longer be a Roman Catholic chaplain, would be something else. And so I think there are, there are real implications that take place in terms of even knowing uh, what various religions uh, believe and teach. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's so much interest in the academy, too, in diversity uh, in the humanities and the social sciences, you know, that we, we shouldn't flatten out the differences between people. We should recognize you know, gender diversity and racial diversity and ethnic diversity and cultural diversity and one would hope religious diversity. And yet, if you want to argue that the religions are all essentially the same, then you're all, you're just flattening out that religious diversity. There's really nothing that a Christian can learn from talking to a Muslim. There's nothing a Muslim can learn from talking to a, to a Buddhist. And there isn't any uh, real fruitful mode of comparison because you're just comparing apples with apples with apples. So, um, yeah, I find that uh, kind of perennialist idea really um, troubling in part. I think part of it's intellectual because I find all the religions I study incredibly fascinating. And what I find fascinating about them is how different they are. And um, one argument I make in God is Not One is that each religion sort of starts with a human problem. And it says, okay, look, the human problem is sin or the human problem is pride or the human problem is suffering or the human problem is a social disorder. And then it gets going on solving that, solving that problem. And then the whole mechanics of the religion and the, and the reason for the religion and the exemplars to which it looks are going to be very, very different. If you're, if you're concerned fundamentally with the problem of sin vis-a-vis being concerned as say Confucians are fundamentally with the problem of social order. So you can't even get at the really important and central questions the world's religions ask if you don't recognize that they're really asking different questions. Do you think that some of it also has to do with the fact that culturally, at least in certain ways, we don't really want to uh, emphasize, certainly people do in, in social media and in the in the broader back and forth hostility culture, but in terms of interpersonal relationships, people often don't want to talk about what uh, divides them. So I had a, a Latter-day Saint a scholar who said to me one time, it just really troubles me that you evangelicals won't count us as Christians. And I, I said, well, why do you really care if you, if you think that we're wrong uh, about that? I said, do you think I'm part of the church? 
And he said, well, no, I, I don't. And I said, okay, well, I, that doesn't bother me. So I think we can have an honest conversation about what we, what we really believe here in a way that doesn't dehumanize one another. Do you think some of that is the case that we really don't have many models for people to say, I think you are completely wrong, but I don't, uh, I don't demonize you or see you as somebody who's not worthy of respect? Yeah, and boy, that's changed since I was in college. I hate to say how, how old I am, but I was in college in the late 70s and early 80s. And the way you knew someone was your friend was because you disagreed with them, told them they were totally wrong about their reading of, you know, John Stuart Mill or their reading of, you know, Marx or whoever you were you were talking about. And we just used to argue about philosophy and religion and politics. And... Uh, people you didn't argue with were the people you didn't worth arguing with, you know? And I think part of why they're reluctant to argue is because exactly what you said, they don't have good models. They get on the internet and they get on social media and the hostility culture, as you call it. And, uh, it just looks like ugliness. Like, why would you want to engage in what you see, um, happening on a Twitter feed or what you see happening on Fox news or on MSNBC? You know, why would you do that? And so, they really don't want to argue about ideas. Now, it's interesting to me. They will argue about movies. They will argue about music. They'll argue about things that seem to be in the realm of taste, where it doesn't seem to be a personal affront if you really don't like the band that your friend you know, really likes. But when it comes to things that are important, like philosophy or religion or politics, there's a real, um, a real reluctance to engage in that. And yes, a real unwillingness to say, I think you are wrong, because saying that seems to be a kind of personal attack. It signals intolerance. It signals dogmatism, things like that. I was really interested in, in uh, I was looking back through and seeing the notes that I made uh, in your book on Jesus uh, from, from several years ago, and wondering, where do you see American Christianity, and, and especially American evangelical Christianity, going in light of secularization, I find there are some evangelical Christians who don't take secularization seriously enough, and they just think if we just do more of what we've always been doing, things will correct themselves. And then others who take it so seriously that they, they're hand-wringing and, and panicked uh, by secularization. Where do you think American Christianity is going? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, the way I looked at the issue in American Jesus was that I tried to think about the United States uh, Christian population as moving through various models where Jesus was largely ignored in the colonial and early national period where Calvinist Puritan theology predominated, and that was more, uh, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament rather than the New Testament, um, focusing more on God the Father than on Jesus. Uh, And then Jesus really emerges as a major personality with the emergence of evangelicalism and in the uh, early 19th century with the, the uh, second great awakening. And then Jesus moves through a period where he's more feminized and gentle and sentimentalized. And then around the time of the turn from the 1900s, sorry, from the 19th century to the 20th century, uh, when football becomes popular, when Teddy Roosevelt is uh, leading the Rough Riders into the Philippines 
we get a more masculine Jesus when the social sciences are telling people that there's not that many men in the church. Why is that? Oh, because the churches have, uh, have been pandering too much to women. Um, and then, of course, in the 60s and 70s, you get this hippie, um, hippie Jesus, countercultural uh, Jesus. And it seems to me that what we have now is a resurgence of that warrior uh, images of Jesus where he is more masculine, where he is more wanting to pick a fight. And I think that that's a product of our contemporary um, culture wars to some extent, the product of our uh, most recent president, that um, these more martial values that we, at least when I was growing up, I didn't associate with Jesus at all, but um, that you can find them in the Bible in various places. Uh, I think that's where things are um, are headed, um, unfortunately. And I think that that can that can obviously change. And, you know, even the word evangelical is very broad, broad brushstroke. That's my sense of it. What do you, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it seems to me that I think when it comes to representations of Jesus, when you look at the New Testament, Jesus, very complicated, complex uh, figure, very, very, very rich figure, obviously. Um, and I, it seems to me that there's often an overreaction to an overemphasis on one piece of Jesus to the exclusion of others. So a lot of the, the, the movements that you're talking about that really emphasize Jesus as warrior, um, I, I think a lot of that is a reaction to a very sentimentalized uh, Jesus, where people are going through and saying, Jesus is, is, is acting in ways that are not as uh, consistently soft uh, as, as I have been told. And so I'm going to react to that. And then I think the same thing happens when you have a really harsh and, and martial vision of Jesus to the exclusion of Jesus as gentle uh, shepherd. I think that sometimes overcorrects as well. So I think often when I'm, when I'm talking to people, it seems to me they're often reacting to the last bad thing uh, or what they perceive to be the last bad thing. Uh, in their lives. And I think that really applies across the board when it comes often to how these religious movements happen, is people say, I don't want to see what I experienced happen again. So I'm going to emphasize the opposite of that. And then you end up with uh, an overemphasis that the next generation can can react to. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And I think it's also probably true that um, because there are so many ways to understand uh, Jesus in the New Testament, right? We do have, it's a tradition that has four Gospels, right? It could have, it could have had one. And therefore, there might have been less wiggle room for understanding Jesus. Because there are so many uh, different ways, different ways of reading him, I do wonder whether there's a sort of a public, if, you know, the public face of Jesus could be more um, militaristic, whereas the, in the same person, the way that they might pray to Jesus or think about Jesus in their own home, or even put up pictures of Jesus in their own home, that those pictures and those, um, you know, the person you see when you close your eyes to pray may be very different from the one that you're, you know, calling up on, on your Twitter account or um, in your newspaper. Yeah. Now, do you see secularization as an inevitable process in the way that, that many people do? So that religion is something, at least institutional religion, the way that we've known it is something that's going to increasingly go away 
in Western culture, or is that a myth? Well, you know, I have been on this side for a long time of the secularization um, skeptics. Um, I've for a long time said, you know, religion isn't going away. Religion is a lot, you know, more powerful in the United States than it than many people think. But I think what has changed my mind a little bit in recent years is that is the rise of the religiously unaffiliated, which is a difficult data point to ignore, that we now have about a quarter of Americans. If you ask, what religion are you? They say, no religion. That's hard to ignore. It was only 12 or so when I first started naysaying secularization 10 or 15 years ago. And so I think you have to take that seriously. You have to also take seriously that many of those people are Christians. Many of those people go to church, right? They're saying, I don't want to be called by the name of a particular religion because I worship Jesus. I don't worship the church. I don't worship Christianity. Um, so it's really interesting in surveys where people say, you know, what religion are you? Somebody says none. Initially, we just counted them as atheists. Totally wrong. A very small percentage of those people are actually atheists. And we also assumed they were had no interest in religious activity, but many of them pray, many of them go to church, many of them believe the Bible is true. But that said, I think human beings are religious. Humans have always been religious. I don't think humans are going to stop being religious. I think the question is, what religions, what gods are we going to worship? And I think a lot of times we mistake shifts in religious allegiances for secularization, where when it's maybe what we're seeing is people moving from certain forms of religion to other forms of religion. Do you think the the phenomenon of spiritual but not religious, the uh, what for a while was kind of a new age spirituality, but it can show up in, in so many divergent ways from kind of Deepak Chopra style mindfulness all the way over to uh, Jordan Peterson and, and the kind of Jungian ideas that are there, but not not related to institutional uh, churches and religion. Is that something that, in your view, is a, a momentary thing, or is that something that's going to be longer lasting in American life? I think it's longer lasting because I also think it's, it's perennial. I mean, as long as religious institutions have not had monopolistic power reinforced by a government, there's always been people who were picking and choosing, who were spiritual but not religious, who were praying but not affiliating themselves with the Holy Roman Catholic Church, or who were meditating but not affiliating themselves with the uh, form of Buddhism of the Japanese emperor. So um, I think, especially and especially in the modern period, when we have seen uh, religious institutions of all sorts do horrible things, you know, back horrible um, leaders, you know, get behind genocides. You know, we've seen that uh, in every, you know, religion, including Buddhism, which is often my students always, they're so surprised to learn that Buddhists can be violent too. But um, I think given the, given the modern period, I think it's inevitable that people are going to say, look, I really love this part of what I grew up with. I love this prayer. I love this form of meditation, but I just can't believe in the Catholic church anymore because of what my, you know, priest did to my niece. Um, and so I think that 
that's I think spiritual but not religious is is uh, is here to stay. Yeah. Now I, I I don't have very much time, but I I wanted to to talk about your book Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars. I reviewed that for the Gospel Coalition. People who are I'll link to it in the show notes. People can look at it. But I didn't entirely buy your argument. I gave my my reasons there, but I found it to be a really thought provoking uh, book. And one of the things, though, that I was wondering about, there's another uh, Boston area academic, Alan Wolf, who several years argued that there actually aren't culture wars in, in American life. His argument was, we talk about culture wars, but actually in the lived reality of the way people live, um, people aren't as countercultural as they pretend to be. Do you think his argument has been proven false? in the years since and are culture wars real and are they going to persist with us? I would just say if you are a culture war denier right now, um, <laughs> it's very hard to make sense of what's going on in the world and certainly in the United States. I mean, there was a um, fellow named Andrew Hartman came out with a book right around the same time as mine where he made the same argument about the culture wars as Alan Wolf and boy, I think that denial argument was over as soon as the 2016 election got going. And um, since that election was settled, the culture wars have only, I mean, what issue isn't implicated now in the culture wars? I mean, can you even name one? I mean, it's really, really hard The the gap between, I mean, I suppose one reason you could say the concept isn't that useful is almost because it's so, it's so much, it's so everywhere. And almost everything is now politicized. You know, you have to sort of imagine what kind of store you're going to. I saw recently, you know, that I'm supposed to be going to Lowe's and not to Home Depot or to Home Depot and not Lowe's because of, you know, how their CEOs, you know, what their CEOs say about certain moral or even religious questions. And so it seems like almost everything is now caught up in this us versus them thing. I think it really depends on what you mean by culture wars. When I did my culture wars book, I started with the Ground Zero Mosque is what really got me interested in the question that that, that took off in 2010. Can these Muslims build this uh, Muslim cultural center with a mosque um, in you know Lower Manhattan uh, near Ground Zero? And uh, that kind of colored my history of the culture wars because I thought of them and observed in them throughout American history from eight, the election of 1800 forward as being more about the question of the meaning of America, who is and who is not an American, who is included and who is not included in uh, America. Can Catholics be Americans? Can gays be Americans? Can atheists be Americans? And I think if you think about the culture wars that way as battles for the soul of America in terms of who is and who cannot be included, then the culture wars are are perhaps as fierce now as they were in 1800, maybe uh, maybe even more so. Have your views changed any uh, since you wrote the book about, for lack of a, a better word, almost the inevitability of whatever is defined as greater inclusion being the end point of, of any particular culture war? When you think about, for instance, just in the last 10 years uh, that, that you're talking about, 10 years ago, the immigration issue, there was a lot of consensus, really, from uh, across left and right on that issue. And now, not just in the United States, but Brexit and, and things that are going on in the European Union, 
this is one of the fieriest cultural war issues that we have. So have your views changed any on that? Uh, <laughs> no. But the fact that it's taken me so long to say no maybe betrays that the answer is yes. I, uh, I think the dynamics of culture wars haven't changed in the sense that I think culture wars, as I argue in the book, are cultural expressions that start with an anxiety among certain uh, people, mostly conservatives, who then attach that anxiety to a particular issue and then attach that particular issue to a broader claim that takes the form of a Jeremiah or, or the lost cause of the post-Civil War era, that things used to be great and now they've become horrible, but they will be great again. And they decide that the mechanism for their return to greatness is going to be some form of exclusion. In other words, it's somebody's fault. It's the Catholics made it bad. Gays and lesbians made it bad. Mormons made it bad. Uh, immigrants made it bad. And we've always done that and we're doing it now. So it's not surprising that we're doing it now. But the resolution of the anti-Catholic culture wars is we don't really have anti-Catholic culture wars anymore. Um, JFK was elected president and can't really be part of American society in any robust way and claim that, you know, that Catholics are un-American. It just, just doesn't work. Same with Mormons. Yeah, but we have, we have Supreme Court cases about whether uh, the government should, should force the Little Sisters of the Poor to be part of the contraceptive mandate. So, so you do have, have that sort of mentality continuing to go on. Yeah, and some people read that as anti-Catholicism. I don't. I read that as a debate over the separation of church and state. And, you know, I could be wrong about that. But, uh, but you know, I don't know. It, it, the, you know, I am a historian and I um, don't believe that the arc of history necessarily bends in any direction as much as I want it to. So I have to admit that it's an open-ended question. And I think that so much of it will hang on this uh, next election, you know, about what kind of country we are and what kind of direction we're going. And, uh, and I think depending on that election, that will probably depend on the answer to your question. And do you think that applies also? There, there are some people who agree with your basic thesis, but make an exception for abortion. And, and the debates that we have over abortion because um, you really have multiple uh, factors at work there. And the fact that there is still a pro-life movement in a way that probably most people in 1973 wouldn't have expected. Uh, do you think that abortion is different than some of these other culture war issues or, or is it in your view the same? No, I think it's different. And I think that um, I think it's different for a few reasons. One is that it's not really so much about the inclusion-exclusion question. But the other reason that it's really different is that it's a horribly vexed um, issue. And there are both American and Christian values on both sides of the debate. And so it, it's, one of the, it's one of the arenas where when you do polling on this, if you, I mean, the polling can come out very different, pro-life, pro-choice, based on how the question is asked, right? But, but insofar as the question is asked in a relatively subtle way, it's just clear Americans are kind of 50-50 divided on this question. And it's, it's hard to imagine that 50-50 division really splitting to being a 60-40 or a 75-25 in my lifetime. It just seems that the way I read it as a kind of from the perspective of sort of 
the history of morals is do you identify with the with the mother or do you identify with the, the fetus? And it seems that in the narratives about abortion, there's reasons to identify with either of those two um, characters. And, or, with uh, or with both, right. And so, so I just think, um, I mean, I talk about this with my students with some books that I, I teach where um, it really depends on wh- what character you identify with, where you come down on the moral question. And I just think it's so hard for so many of us to know which character to, to identify with on that question. I don't think that that, that debate's going away. Well, this is Stephen Prothero. He's the author of Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars uh, and Religious Literacy, American Jesus, uh, and A God is Not One. Uh, and uh, these books are, are really helpful, I think, uh, for uh, those of you who are who are looking around at the, the global landscape and saying what's happening sociologically in terms of religion. Now, that doesn't answer uh, the bigger question that we have theologically, what has God revealed to us? But it helps us to understand what people are thinking and what people are are wrestling with when they do identify with a particular religion or, as Professor Prothero said, say, I don't have any religion at all. I'm religiously unaffiliated. So thanks so much for being with us today on Signpost. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. I always enjoy talking to you, and I enjoyed it uh, today as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Signpost today. I ask you, if you have a minute, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen. And it really helps us if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or or Google Podcasts because that helps other people to find the show. And remember, you can tap the cover art or swipe on it and you can find the show notes with links to the things that we're talking about here today as well as my review of Professor Prothero's book Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars up at the Gospel Coalition. This is Russell Moore and you're listening to Signposts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.